One day, back in the teeth of winter, I know it kind of felt that way again this morning, but way back there in early January, I drove up to the house and I saw Kim outside bent down tending to a patch of dirt in our front yard or our side yard that's right next to a walkway that goes back to our deck. That's the spot where every spring buttercups will spring up out of the ground, uh, fitting for that time of year. And they're the first always of the blooming flowers of spring, as, as you all know. She was out there in early January weeding around in that, in that patch, hope written all over her face, plumes of frosty breath indicating the fervor with which she tended the, the dirt. I did not share her hope. Not at all. I said something like, you know, every year these things spring up out of the ground. They launch. They're fooled, as so many of us are, by the, the false spring, the first of three or four of them that we experience in Middle Tennessee, only to get bitten when the cold weather returns. There's no point, I said. Something like that. And it made me remember a time many years ago now when I walked up to in the courtyard it was right in the middle of summer it was it was hot as blue blazes as we would say and I found Wes Miller the late Wes Miller one of the saints of the church no longer with us and Duke Ellis sitting in the middle of the canna lilies right out by the cross they're no longer there and there's a reason for that right around the base of the courtyard cross digging up weeds right down in the, in the middle of all of these canna lilies. And Duke, as many of you know, is a master gardener. West's not bad at it either. And I remember it being so hot. And I saw Wes was sitting on a little stool and Duke was kneeling down in the weeds. And there were a lot of weeds yet to go. And I said helpfully good morning it's awfully hot out here to be doing this and Duke said we got here early and we'll break off in a little while and tomorrow we'll come back and do some more and I offered some advice because you know the pastor always knows better than the master gardener on these things and I said don't they have some sort of stuff in the store that you can spray all around and all over the plants and it'll kill the weeds, but it won't harm the plants. I might as well have suggested magic pixie dust, you know. But Duke's patience with the flowers extended to his clueless pastor. And he smiled and said, I don't know of anything like that for these weeds. Some weeds... There's only one way to get rid of them, hard work. And the longer you let them grow, the harder the work. And Wes added, as if reading my mind, no shortcuts here, Pastor. He might as well have said, bless his heart. 
which, as you know, in the South is not a benediction. <laughs> Two parables for you this morning. One in the cold and one in the heat to lay alongside the one offered us by Jesus. About gardeners and work and hope and fruit. Let it alone, the gardener says to the owner. Let me work at it. It will be work, no doubt about that. The fig tree has been fruitless for three years now. He will dig and fertilize, uh, put manure all over it, and in the hope of one thing, the fruit of repentance. That's an important word for Luke. It's an important word for this text today. That, that Greek word that's translated repentance is metanoia. It, it can be translated conversion, but it means so much more than that, as you heard just a moment ago. You can see the hint of it in English words like metamorphosis. Repentance means to turn radically, to turn from the direction in which one is moving and to actively go in a different direction. It's to recognize that the path on which you are traveling is not leading to life, is not producing fruit, and to accept the invitation, the gracious invitation, to turn around and to go another way, to, to change, to be changed. I think this is the key to understanding all of those interactions with Jesus that precede this parable. Not pleasant to hear about or talk about, but... They're there, so we'll talk about them. Someone told Jesus about this horrific tragedy where Pilate mingles the blood of Galileans, worshiping Galileans, and Jesus takes the opportunity to say to them, those who shared this information with him, that this didn't happen to them because they were the worst sinners in Galilee. This was no punishment from God. No, Jesus says it's not punishment anymore than that tragedy when the Tower of Siloam fell and killed all those people. Jesus brings that one up. Jesus' answer doesn't try to explain the events in terms of punishment for sins, which was a very popular way to explain those things in those days, but as a warning about the fragility and unpredictability of life Tragedy does not strike because of sin, he says, but it does strike. And no one is immune, no one at all. And so he says, repent. You do not repent to avoid perishing, but precisely because you and I, all of us, will perish in one way or another sooner or later. And fruit in the New Testament is almost always associated with outward and visible characteristics. You remember Paul saying, it's one of my favorite scriptures, the fruit of the Spirit is love, 
joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And at another place, Jesus says, by their fruits, you shall know them. That is, after all, the only way any of us know anyone. We can't get inside their souls, inside their minds, by their fruits. You will know them. How does one exactly produce such fruits? The key, I think, in this text is the realization that we are not ultimately the ones who produce it, but God in us. You hear us use this phrase around here a lot, God at work, or God is at work. And it begs the question, in the church, in the world, in individual lives, what does God's work look like? And I wonder if it doesn't look like a woman bent over the soil of our souls, cultivating us in hope. Or two men tending weeds among the lilies of our hearts, creating the climate for growth. I wonder if that's not what it looks like, God at work. God at work in all of us, in us collectively. And why does God cultivate us? To what end? To see fruit. And then you might ask the question again, to what end? What is the fruit for? In the Jewish tradition, the phrase tikkun olam means literally to mend the world. To mend the world. The phrase points to the task of service, not for the sake of service itself, but as an act of mending what is broken. Surely this is the task that Jesus calls us to, the fruit he longs to see in us, the work toward a world healed and whole. After all, that was his work. Is that not ours as well? Is he not at work right now through the Spirit in the world to that end through us? No shortcuts here, Pastor. Wes said that to me on that hot summer morning as he bent down again to the sweaty, patient, back-breaking work of clearing out the weeds. Let it alone, said the patient gardener in the text. Let it alone. I'll tend to it. Wes and Duke and Kim ignored the cynicism of their pastor. The cynicism that is often a thinly veiled cover for not wanting to do the hard work. We might call it spiritual horticultural laziness. Let me do some hard work here, they said to me. There's life in here, I know it. Repent, says Jesus. Why? Because life is short. You never know when the tyrant 
or the tower is coming for you. And so allow yourself, be opened, allow yourself to be formed by God, to be used by God, not for yourself, but for the healing of the world. Lent is a time to do that hard inventory of our living, to get down in the weeds of our hearts, to ask ourselves ultimate questions of to whom or what are we giving the best of ourselves. But Lent is also the promise that we do not do this work alone. The patient gardener, even now, is walking alongside us, pruning and digging and loving, eagerly anticipating the fruit yet to come in us. Fruit to bless the world. When we say we are responding to God's grace through service, we are pointing to our desire to be part of that mending work that God is doing in the world all around us. It could be the mending of a broken heart as a Stephen minister, or the mending of a broken life and life circumstance by housing the homeless, the, the mending of displaced people by welcoming the refugee, the mending of discord by working for reconciliation, the mending of loneliness by making that phone call, the mending of oppression by advocating for the least among us, the mending of hunger and isolation with a hot meal, the mending that happens through you, through your service. That's God's work in the world. We all watched in horror when that photo went around the world of that family of three a mother, her 17-year-old son, and her 9-year-old daughter who were killed when they were shelled trying to escape in what was supposed to be a green zone, a safe zone, a suburb of Kiev. And there was a fourth person with them, a man, who everyone thought at first must have been the father, that this was a family of four. Later we learned that he was not the father, that the father was not even in the area. He had gone to tend to his sick mother, sick with COVID. But this man was described over and over in the news simply as this, a volunteer from the church. A volunteer from their church who was helping families evacuate. And I've tried really hard. I've not been able to find out anything else about this man other than that he was a volunteer from their church. But you know, that's all I really need to know. He was serving. He was mending. He was answering the call of the same Christ we all worship. He gave his life for that service. Stephanie Paulsell writes, and it echoes our mission statement, we need places to pray as if someone were listening, 
to study as if we might learn something worth writing on our hearts, to join with others in service as if the world might be transformed. Churches are places to practice, to practice with others, a continual conversion of life, a permanent openness to change, metanoia, repentance, not a one-time thing, a lifelong process. One day when the weather turned warm, the buttercups shot up out of the ground. It was hard to miss the look of victory on Kim's face. And I said, silently, I'm no fool, just wait. And sure enough, the false spring in a matter of days gave way to a morning, you all remember, of 20 degrees when we woke up. And the buttercups, when I went outside, were drooped over as if they were kneeling at me, acknowledging my wisdom. <laughs> but you know, cynicism is never wisdom. Never. Even when it may be correct. Because cynicism stifles the work of hope. It is, in essence, a hopeless view of the world. It pretends that it has the last word, that all is lost anyway, so why try? On a warmer day, just a few days later, I came outside to find the buttercups standing at attention, a silent witness to the power of hope and the value of hopeful work, digging in the dirt. And this time, Kim and I both had to smile. No shortcuts here, church. With God's help, we are called to the life of repentance, to bear the fruit of service in response to God's grace, which always resounds to hope. Let it alone, the gardener says, on his way to the cross. I will tend to it. I will tend to it. And so he does. Amen.